Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today, we're looking at whether the conflict with ISIS in Syria and Iraq may be reaching some sort of climax and at the attendant risks and dangers, particularly of great power conflict. Joining me on the line from Beirut is our Middle East commentator, David Gardner, and here in the studio, our former Washington correspondent, Jeff Dyer. David, first of all, it feels like there may be some sort of breakthrough in the war with ISIS at the moment. Uh, they're clearly on the the retreat in, in Mosul and perhaps in Raqqa too. Yes, it's been something of the order of six months, the fight in Mosul, and it looks very much as though reaching an end. I mean, you would have seen that the mosque, the Nuri Mosque, at which the Abu Bakr Baghdadi, the ISIS leader, declared himself caliph of the Islamic State some three years ago, was blown up. They blew it up yesterday. That's being interpreted by Iraqi leaders as the beginning or very close to the end of this siege. The remaining ISIS fighters in Mosul have, in any case, had any escape route cut off by Shia militia forces to their west. And it still may be very bloody there, particularly in terms of rigged houses, trucks, cars, and so on, with bombs and so on. Um, to the west in Syria, the other jihadi citadel of Raqqa, that battle started, what, a few weeks ago in earnest, after a gradual progress down the Euphrates River towards this city. And it is progressing, so far as one can judge, faster than expected. The main strike force being used by the U.S.-led coalition, which is Syrian Kurdish militia, had Raqqa encircled on three sides, the fourth side being the Euphrates River itself. But now, They've taken hold, by the looks of it, at the south bank of the river. So that may proceed a little bit faster than expected, yes. So, Jeff, I mean, presumably when Mosul falls, if and when it does, and then Raqqa falls, this will be a moment of triumph and vindication in Washington, where, I mean, the Obama administration obviously declared war on ISIS, but... President Trump has made the struggle against them the centerpiece of his foreign policy. Will the Americans regard this as a big success for them? They will do, but you're already seeing a big split within the administration about what to do next. Everyone's already moving on to the, the post-ISIS phase. And a particular thing to pay attention to is less on Russia, even though you had this big confrontation on the weekend, and more on Iran. That's the one that is really capturing the attention of the administration. And the way that Iranian militias and Iranian proxies are already assuming ISIS on the way out and trying to gain territory in bits of Iraq and bits of Syria. And so the debate within the administration is, some people say, you know, our job was just to fight ISIS, and we're going to beat ISIS, and then we're done. 
But there's a whole other school of thought that's saying we need to confront, stand up to, push back against Iran in Iraq and in Syria. And that's the next phase. And that's very interesting because you've, you know the, the one kind of coherent foreign policy idea, in a sense, has really been articulated by President Trump since he's been in office, is a deep antithesis towards Iran. That was the, the, underbind, <clears throat> the kind of main conclusion of his Saudi visit, was putting his hand on the orb and waving those swords around. He's, he was articulating, absorbing promoting a kind of Saudi worldview in a sense whereby he sees Iran as the culprit for most of the wrongdoing in the Middle East. And so it is entirely possible that he might be persuaded by that line of thought and think that he does need to have a, a second phase and to, to try and push back against Iran. But that is very much not what anyone who voted for, for Trump in the election last year, what they voted for. I mean, they voted for thinking that he was going to get them out of more conflicts in the Middle East. But there's a, a voluble constituency within his administration that wants to double down in this conflict in Syria and Iraq. Interesting. So, David, let's say that the Americans in the end don't go for what Jeff is calling the second phase where they go after Iran. Does that mean that in the vacuum that comes after the fall of Raqqa and Mosul, that Iran is the big regional gainer or is it more complex than that? Well, it's, it's so far as the Trump White House is concerned, it's actually quite hard to separate out intention from unintended consequence or indeed tactic from strategy, if there indeed is one. I mean, what we have had, in addition to this Syrian war plane being shot down last week, I mean, prior to that, there were three, in as many weeks, three recent clashes in which the U.S. Air Force bombed Iran-backed forces fighting on behalf of the Assad regime in the south and the east. I mean, all explained away as, you know, self-defense. They were coming too close to American-backed forces and so on and so forth. It was therefore all force protection. But there is a competition going on to see who can, as you put it, fill this vacuum on the Syria-Iraq border because Iran and its allies, its proxy allies, clearly have in mind to build a land corridor from Iraq through Syria to the Mediterranean. And we don't really know whether there is a strategy, a U.S. strategy to deal with this. What we do know is that eastern Syria, the skies and battlefields are filling up and becoming as crowded and dangerous as was uh, the territory west of the river Euphrates prior to the fall of Aleppo in December. The other unintended consequences, which, you know, may emerge in the coming months. I mean, it was, for example, not presumably the intention of the U.S. or of Western policy to dismember Iraq when the invasion took place in 2003 and the subsequent occupation. Yet here we are facing this September a referendum in Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, on independence. Is something similar, some similar fragmentation going to take place as a result of American sponsorship of Syrian Kurds across all of northern Syria? It's very, very hard to tell. What we do know, though, is that the two men in the Trump administration, Generals Masters and Mattis, at the National Security Council and the Pentagon, frequently referred to as the adults in the room in this administration, are almost as fervently anti-Iranian as was the former 
defenestrated National Security Advisor General Flynn. So, Jeff, as David was saying, very hard to disentangle strategy, tactics, adaptation to what's happening on the ground. But looking at particularly at what's happening on the ground, my impression is that the Americans' military has slightly been let off the leash. You've had the shooting down of the Syrian plane, you had the earlier bombing of Syrian airbase, and also talk of much heavier civilian casualties. As Can you put that together? You know, one way to understand the Trump administration is it does the opposite of what the Obama administration did. And one of the chief criticisms within the sort of national security establishment of the Obama administration was that the president and the White House tried to micromanage the Pentagon excessively, tried to micromanage every aspect of every conflict that they were involved in. And so one thing that Trump has done is he has given the you know the Pentagon more more leeway, he's given them more leash. And so you see that in Afghanistan, where now the commanders are now deciding. Uh, to, to increase, they get the, the authority to decide whether to put more troops into Afghanistan. And you've seen that in Syria, where they've had more authority to take part in different airstrikes and different activities on the ground without necessarily going through the White House. So there's a tactical aspect to that. But there is also just a strategic aspect, which is that Trump doesn't seem particularly interested in this and doesn't seem particularly interested in answering any of these big questions about what he's trying to do in Syria, what he's trying to do in Afghanistan. The two together combined to have a situation where you can have events on the ground whereby you know, the Pentagon or the U.S. forces get involved in certain certain conflicts, certain incidents, and that will generate itself or bring the U.S. into a conflict on the ground, even without any decision from the top that it wants to. Uh, but I think David's other point is very crucial. We, you know, we've seen in a lot of other issues in this administration a split between Trump White House and Mattis at the Pentagon, McMaster or maybe Tillerson. But on Iran, that is the one subject that brings together all the different people in this administration. Mattis, McMaster, also Pompeo, the CIA, they're all very, very sceptical, very, very uh, suspicious of Iran. Uh, that's the one kind of coherent thought that brings them together. Um, and if, if Mattis had been appointed to a different administration, that's actually the, the, the one thing we'd be probably talking about him, is just what an Iran hawk he is. Mm. And instead of thinking of him as the, the sensible guy who's kind of you know keeping the republic under control when we have a, a president who's not very interested in these issues. But you said earlier that uh, there was a split in the administration over whether to go for a second phase and whether to go over Iran, but you just indicated that all the key players seem to be on the get tough with Iran side. Lower down in the military, there's a sense that our job is to defeat ISIS and that's it. There's to be people lower down the military would say it would be pretty crazy for us to get involved in some kind of proxy war with Iran to control basically bits of desert, uninhabited territory in eastern Syria and northwestern Iraq. There'd be people who would say that that's a crazy thing for the US to be fighting over. But that's the discussion that's going on now. And meanwhile, David, of course, there's this broader regional context, which is that there's a kind of Cold War broken out in the Gulf between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And the Saudis, of course, the leaders of the anti-Iranian faction, and have just announced a real shakeup in their uh, succession plans for the kingdom. Where does the Saudi angle fit into all of this? hasn't it, in the past five or six weeks, I mean, beginning with President Trump's visit, his summit in Riyadh, where the Saudis and the newly elevated young crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, laid on for him a summit of 50 Arab and Islamic leaders, as well as trade investment and arms contracts worth about $400 billion. And Trump there, in effect, incited Saudi Arabia to lead a Sunni Arab jihad against Shiite Iran. He called for the total isolation of Iran and hinted at regime change. Subsequently, Mohammed bin Salman made a statement in a TV interview 
threatening to carry the fight, you know, dispense with all this proxy skirmishing around the region and carry the fight directly into Iran. A pretty portentous threat, which was then followed by two jihadi attacks, the first in a decade in Tehran, which, although claimed by ISIS, were immediately blamed on Saudi Arabia by Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Subsequent to that, you called upon to isolate Iran. The first thing that Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates did, with the support of Egypt and others, was to isolate Qatar, accusing it of dallying with Iran on the one hand, and probably more irritating for them, you know, fostering various Islamist forces, including the Muslim Brotherhood, which the absolute monarchies of the Gulf see as a serious and subversive threat. Now, as of yesterday, Mohammed bin Salman has been elevated to a position of near absolute power, given the age of his father, uh, 81, a young prince, inexperienced, untried, politically impetuous, age 31, has this power and is sharpening this antagonism towards Iran at a time when the region as a whole has become seriously combustible. So that's where we are, and this could get a little bit scary. Well, I'll turn then to the calm voice of Jeff Dyer, if we're all feeling a bit scared, to try and cut for some closing thoughts. I mean, obviously the situation that David outlines has, as he puts it, many combustible elements. The United States has sort of held the ring in the Middle East for quite a long time. And underlying a lot of our discussion seems to me is this question of where is America? Is it basically in an isolationist phase and wants to get out? Or is it preparing for another big push to try to restore order in the Middle East? And I know there's no definitive answer to that question, but what's your feeling? Where do you think they'll go? I mean, there's absolutely no answer whatsoever to this question. There's no real sense that the, the president and the White House is really even discussing or even wanting to answer these types of questions. So just on the Qatar situation, you have a within the administration, you have a situation where Donald Trump initially seemed to be extremely approving of the Saudi effort to blockade Qatar. There were some mischievous reports that suggested that he wasn't at that time aware that there was a very important U.S. air base in Qatar that was actually running the air war in, in Syria and Iraq. But yet in recent days, we've seen the, the State Department being extremely critical of the Saudis. So you, you have on this particular issue and more broadly administration that really is all over the place that has a lot of tactical autonomy that's been pushed down, particular military issues towards the Pentagon, but in strategic questions of, a, of trying to understand what it wants to achieve, setting goals, testing strategy, answering the big questions about what it wants to do, just doesn't really seem to be anywhere. Well, with that thought, thank you very much indeed to Jeff Dyer here in London and to David Gardner in Beirut. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.